This program is brought to you by the Practicing Law Institute, a nonprofit learning organization dedicated to keeping attorneys, professionals, and accountants at the forefront of knowledge and expertise. Hello, and welcome to the Insecurities Podcast, keeping it fresh and staying wonky on the latest securities, regulatory, and enforcement developments with a practitioner's perspective on the stories you should be following. As always, I'm Chris Ekimoff, and I'm here with my co-host, Kurt Wolf. It is good to be with you, Chris. You know, I don't have any big pop culture references for you this week. I oh, mean, no. there's a big game coming up I, I hear on Sunday, but you know, no, nothing that I need to drag out of you this week. I don't know. You got anything up top? I mean, I've enjoyed the, I believe, intellectual property or trademark and copyright adjacent discussion where people are describing the big game in terms of its relation to a specific animal. People are referencing it by calling it the superb owl. Superb owl. And if you look at that, you know, the letters spelled out there, you might figure out what we're referencing. So if you see posts oh, or, or social media references to a superb owl, that's, that might be one way to, to describe something that I'm sure most of America will be doing and probably many of our listeners will be doing this coming weekend. So yeah, I don't think there will be any links in the show notes to that. It's <laughs> the a superb but, owl. <laughs> yeah, but it's a good note. Uh, no, no, it's, uh, you know, kind of keeping it right down the middle this week. We had a really fun conversation a couple of weeks ago with Ann Kelly, where we talked about sort of SEC budget making and the policy around that. Really good reaction to that episode. I think folks didn't understand that process as well as they might. So recommend going back and listening to it if you didn't listen all the way through. But today we're coming sort of back home. We're going to you know, talk about some folks that are in the SEC regulatory sphere, which seems to be getting busier and busier all the time. It's, you know, we talk about rulemaking a lot, but it just feels like it's never ending. I mean, even within the past, I don't know, week or 10 days, we've seen new rules for SPAC reporting. We've seen new rules that change the definition of dealer to pull in new firms. We've seen new rules that will enhance, I think is the word they say, enhance private fund reporting. So it, it, it continues. Today, we've got a guest who operates in a regulated space. But I think what we're going to learn is for a lot of companies or a lot of firms, it's not just the SEC. That's right. There is the entire alphabet soup and we'll do our acronym bingo again. <laughs> right. But there's the entire alphabet soup of regulators out there that sometimes are just piling on in a sense from a regulatory compliance standpoint. So we're going to hear a little bit about that today. Yeah, and we're excited to have our guest here. Josh is joining us today, and, and we'll get into some of those topics here. But first, uh, a little bit about our guest. Josh Rubin is the vice president of legal at Betterment, where he leads the product counseling and regulatory function. In that capacity, he advises the company on investment management, broker-dealer, ERISA, banking, and privacy issues, as well as other regulatory and policy developments. Josh has been a member of the Betterment legal team for nearly seven years, and before that was a litigator in private practice. Josh, welcome to Insecurities. Thanks so much for having me, guys. Delighted to be here with you. All right, so Josh, I just I want to start at, at the beginning, as they say, right? For us, or maybe folks who are listening to the podcast, Betterment is maybe a household name, all right? But maybe not everyone knows exactly what it does. So just baseline, what products and services does Betterment offer? Sure. So Betterment is an automated and we'd like to think easy to use saving and investing platform that supports customers of all stripes on their wealth building journey. 
I, even before I get into sort of the products and services that we offer, I'd like to just give a little bit of sort of how we think about the company and, and our mission, if that's okay. And you know, we really are a, a mission-based company. That mission has evolved over time. And now we like to say that our mission is to make people's lives better, which is simple. And you know, we really are helping our customers save for whatever their goals and their dreams are, however small, however big. And the company was founded on a pretty simple idea, which is that high quality fiduciary advice shouldn't be available just to the wealthy. And we have for nearly 15 years now used technology to offer advice at scale and at a fraction of the cost that traditional advisors are charging their clients and market. The other thing that I think is really cool from my perspective is that the entire business is designed around putting clients' interests first and acting in our clients' best interests. And so, you know, as the, the head regulatory lawyer, it's, uh, it's sort of nice for me to be able to point to a fiduciary obligation, which we'll talk about, but to really have the entire company is bought in around the notion that the, the business is designed around putting our, our clients' interests first. So I can go back a little in history too, if that's okay. We were founded in 2008 at the dawn of the financial crisis, and we really pioneered the category of digital investment advice. So sometimes you might hear us referred to as a robo-advisor. It's not really our favorite term. We think that you know, it was sort of a pejorative that the, uh, the big players in the industry came up to, to try and tag us as you know, providing some lesser quality of advice, which we don't think is true. But we prefer the term digital investment advice. And we're really part of a, a broader story of financial innovation. So you can sort of connect the dots from the back in the, the 40s and 50s of the days of your stockbroker as your financial advisor to May Day and the deregulation of commissions to the rise of discount brokerages like Charles Schwab to the shift to mutual funds and ETFs, and then advisors sort of serving as portfolio managers for their clients, all the way to, to the emergence of digital advisors like, like Betterment. So Josh, hopefully that helps to situate us a little bit. Josh, yeah. you've already identified yourself as both wonky and fresh, right? So, <laughs> so you've definitely hit on some of the, the deeper details we discuss here on insecurities. As oh, well good. Well, well glad, glad, to, glad to hit that, that right spot for you, you. especially you know, the weekend before Super Bowl Sunday. That's right. It's a one-two punch. I could tell Chris is just grabbing the mic here because I was getting ready to derail everything. Like half of what you said just made me want to go into like, let's talk about fiduciaries. Let's talk about Reg BI, which Chris hates. Wait, and what's what are the that? Like, I'm not familiar you know, with that. I totally get why you don't want to be sort of a robo-advisor. I get the digital investment advice piece of that and, and why it matters. But Chris, I'm not going to steal your That's, thunder. I mean, just rubbing your hands together on camera here, Kurt, getting ready for <laughs> it. So Josh, you talked a lot about kind of the approach Betterment has to clients. And, and a lot of times we think of those as the individuals, right? But also Betterment provides a, a lot of help, support, and, and services to, to other businesses, right? Through through the B2B programs at Betterment. Talk a little bit more about that for us. Yeah, sure. So in addition to our direct-to-retail client line where our retail clients are able to identify financial goals and then Betterment uh, provides discretionary management of those goals. So we help to essentially curate portfolios of low-cost, diversified 
ETFs and uh, tailor them to both the sort of flavor of investing style that our clients would like to choose. So we sort of have the bread and butter betterment portfolio, which is based on sort of you know standard market portfolio theory, you know, things that, that your listeners have probably heard of. We have SRI portfolios, we have a sort of a tech forward innovative company portfolio. So Clients are able to choose what flavor of investing they want. They indicate what their goal is, what their time horizon is. And then we essentially curate a portfolio of ETFs for them. And so that was sort of how we started when we launched, but we've also expanded into two business to business lines as well. The first is called Betterment for Advisors, which you can think of as a white label digital wealth management solution for small and startup RIAs where we're doing portfolio management. We're handling custody through our broker-dealer entity and taking care of a lot of the back-end functionality that allows our RIA clients to focus on the business of talking with and serving their customers and allowing us to automate a lot of what goes on on the back. The second line of business, which is really sort of a key part of our growth story today, is our set of solutions for small and medium-sized businesses. And it's really centered around the 401k, but not exclusively limited to a 401k. So back in 2015 or even before, and that was before I even got to Betterment, we were looking around for uh, a 401k to provide to our own employees. And we looked out into the market and we weren't really satisfied by what we saw. And so we made the decision to just build one ourselves on top of the technology that we were using to serve our, our retail clients. And today, the 401k offering is a bundle of record keeping, advisory and brokerage and custody services where 401k participants essentially get their own personal target date fund is how I like to think of it. So we're talking about separately managed accounts, but they are specifically tailored to the precise retirement horizon for each of the participants who's saving for retirement and again, targeted to their specific risk level and also their desired style of, of investments. And then just to maybe add on to that, you know, over time, we've also discovered that our small and medium sized business clients have not wanted to sort of only play in the 401k space, but have been interested in expanding into a broader set of financial wellness products that we think complement the 401k really well. So the Betterment at Work business line sort of is centered around the 401k, but also provides uh, access to financial coaching, to student loan management, and to college savings through five to nines. And I think that it provides you know, a really nice package of services that our clients are able to offer their employees. It's really interesting. I mean, when we were preparing for this episode, you, you kind of mentioned some of these B2B products and services, and, and I honestly didn't even really know it was out there. You know, I associate Betterment with some of the retail advisory types of you know products that, that you were, or services that you were describing a little bit earlier. So really fascinating, actually, to hear about the, the B2B side of things. You know, I have to think that between sort of the retail advisory work and the, you know, the B2B side of Betterment, you must constantly, and you in particular, right, as like the head regulatory lawyer at Betterment, you must constantly be juggling a mix of sort of securities and non-securities regulatory requirements, you know, compliance obligations. Of course, any regulated entity kind of looks out on a different landscape and sees different, you know, rules or regs that they have to comply with. But I guess I'd be curious to hear a little bit about what you see 
on the regulatory landscape for betterment. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, maybe before getting into the alphabet soup of regulators, it helps to explain our entity structure just a little bit. Yeah. So we, one of our, the primary entity through which we offer products to our clients is our SEC registered investment advisor, which is regulated by the SEC and has a fiduciary obligation to its clients. So that sort of you know, forms, like I said at the outset, the, the basis of a lot of how we think about the world. We also have a, bro- a broker-dealer entity called Betterment Securities, which is registered with FINRA and also regulated by the SEC. So every one of our clients who establishes an advisory re- relationship also opens a brokerage account with the broker-dealer entity. And then, you know, with respect to the 401k product, there are aspects of the 401k offering that implicate ERISA and where the Department of Labor is the primary regulator. The IRS also, you know, has uh, a lot to say about uh, management of retirement accounts and particularly the, the tax treatment of retirement accounts. And then, you know, sort of on top of that, a lot of our offering, at least on the retail side, but sort of across all of our business lines is focused on tax optimization features. So we have a tax loss harvesting feature. We do asset allocation to make sure that assets are put in the type of taxable or tax advantaged account that's most appropriate for that particular asset based on expected returns and volatility that's going to decrease in our view the taxes that our clients will owe over the the lifetime of staying invested in that asset. So we sort of think about the way that the IRS thinks about those issues as well. And then Beyond that, Betterment is not a bank, but we do offer certain banking services. So we have a a white-labeled checking account that is offered through an actual bank, NBKC, the National Bank of Kansas City is where those letters ultimately originated. And we also have a cash management product. Both of those are regulated by the FDIC in certain respects and even the Federal Reserve in, in, in other respects. And then on top of that, there's also state regulatory apparatus. So there are state securities regulators, there are state banking regulators, and then on the financial privacy side, there are a number of state attorneys general who are focusing on privacy as a number of states step into the void of federal privacy law and start to establish their own regimes. I'm kind of imagining that Betterment is that Venn diagram in which every regulator overlaps right in the center, or, or at least in, I'm sure it feels that way sometimes, Josh. <laughs> yeah, we're in the crosshairs of everybody That's, at times. And my guess is, <laughs> as you all are considering kind of some of the products and services you've talked about and maybe others that are in development or being researched, you know, what role does considerations of the regulatory framework work into those decisions, right? Is that something you think about early on or are we much more product focused and, and, and aligning with the appropriate standards down the road? We do think about that early on, and, and we do have a, an approach that maybe differentiates us from some other financial service providers who are, who are out there in the market. And that approach is that we try to put the investment advisor entity front and center for all of our products. So the way that we think about it is that the RIA is responsible for the public-facing website and also the application that's behind the login once clients establish a relationship with us. Uh, It's responsible for all of the communication with our clients, and it also makes all of the discretionary decisions with respect to portfolio management of accounts, from choosing the tickers that are actually going to be bought and sold in client accounts, to even the timing of trades. 
And so I, I mentioned before that every client also has to open a brokerage account with Betterment Securities, but the broker dealer in our structure is there really in a limited capacity to fulfill the specific regulatory requirements that are associated with the advisor's offering. So that's really trading and custody. But again, we think of the advisor as the brain and we think of the broker dealer as sort of the reflexive follower of the instructions of the RIA, even with respect to trading. The RIA says trade this and trade at this time. And the BD says, yes, I'm going to go off and execute. And so that's led to some perhaps unusual choices in the way that we've structured certain products as we branch beyond traditional securities offerings. So I mentioned our cash management product a, a couple of minutes ago, we call that cash reserve. And that is offered through the RIA entity, even though it uh, sort of looks and feels a lot like a brokerage sweep type account that other broker dealers will offer exclusively through um, the broker dealer entity. And you know, sort of the advantage, at least as far as we see it, to involving the RIA is that the RIA, given its grant of discretionary authority, can allocate client deposits among different banks in order to try to achieve an, an interest rate that might be better than you know, what clients might be able to achieve uh, if they were to, to go and open accounts directly with you know, a particular bank. Our crypto offering, which I don't think that I've mentioned, but we do have. I was going to say this is a, an episode we haven't gotten to crypto. Finally got there, <laughs> but we we do have a crypto offering, and it also is a little bit different than many of the crypto offerings that are out there in the sense that it is not a self-directed crypto offering, but really parallels the way that we manage traditional securities. So you establish a relationship with our RIA entity. The actual crypto assets are custodied at uh, a crypto custodian, but uh, the RIA is managing a basket of digital assets and doing automated rebalancing and choosing which digital assets are going to be actually in the client's portfolios. So there is this intermediation of the RIA, even on the, the crypto side as well. And you know, I think that lends a sort of cohesiveness to the offering that we sort of treat in securities and cash and crypto in a similar way. But uh, again, it all involves the RIA as the, the front door and the brain of the offering. It sounds, Josh, like there's a lot on your plate and on Betterment's plate across a variety of different regulators and activities and products, you know, crypto, cash and the like. But to shift gears a little bit, I want to open this up a little bit more to what Kurt is on the edge of his seat to discuss. Uh, you know, from Betterment's perspective and specific to securities, what what are some of the securities regulatory developments that, that you all are tracking right now? So given, again, that the investment advisor is front and center in our offering and investment advisors are fiduciaries, like we talked about a bit before, we, we grapple a lot with the concept of fiduciary duty. So, you know, the duty of care, the duty of loyalty, and, you know, generally the principles-based regime that the Advisors Act puts in place and that, you know, the SEC is responsible for overseeing. So SEC has issued guidance on digital advice over the years, I think as far back as 2017. And the, the thrust of it is that advice is advice, regardless of the medium in which it's offered. So I think, you know, we're grappling with a lot of the same issues that any other investment advisor is grappling with, whether it's the new marketing rule, you know, whether it is these sort of questions around suitability, duty of care, you know, things like that. I think that the one thing that that is a little bit different for us is that at least the, the last time I checked, they haven't quite figured out how to make a computer sit for a licensing exam. And so, you know, there are these sort of unique 
uh, considerations when you are using algorithms to provide advice to clients at, at scale. And we spend a lot of time thinking about those issues in particular. So, you know, I think that we sort of think about the traditional flavor of algorithm governance, which is where you have advice models, you take inputs and, you know, around suitability, around a client's investing timeframe and investing objectives and the risk tolerance. And then you sort of put them through the code and you're supposed to get certain outputs that you hope are what you expect to see, you know, based on what those inputs are. And, you know, we spent a lot of time thinking about developing the right policies and procedures and, and oversight to make sure that the machine is doing what we intend for the machine to do in order for us to be able to offer this quality advice at scale like, like I've been talking about. Yeah, I mean, it, it doesn't surprise me to hear that that you're focusing on that from a, I, I don't know, a development standpoint for sure. But there are obviously maybe new regulatory questions that are really kind of coming to the fore, right? I mean, certainly since DEPs, digital engagement practices, uh, over, I guess it was the end of last summer, we started hearing a lot about PDA, predictive data analytics, right? And over the last few months, we've been hearing a lot from the SEC about AI, artificial intelligence, right? Everybody's been talking about AI for a while, but the SEC, I think, has been really focused on it over the last, I don't know, less than a year, I think, in a meaningful way. But it, so it, it seems like, I don't know if it's a shift in in tone. There's not really been rulemaking in, in the traditional sense, but they talk a lot about it. It's clear that the staff is focusing on it, whether that's you know the folks in exams who have said they're going to look at this stuff, the folks in enforcement are certainly looking at this stuff. I just wonder how that is sort of playing into what Betterment's doing or what Betterment's view is, if, if you have one you can share, about the current focus on PDA and AI. Of course. And we did put in a, a public comment on the PDA rule proposal. I think you know our view on that particular rule is that we think that, again, that the Advisors Act provides a principles-based framework, which you know is basically sufficient to address digital engagement practices and predictive data analytics. But even beyond that, I think that you know, we're hesitant to throw the baby out with the bathwater, that we appreciate that there can be certain digital engagement practices which are conflicted and which might steer clients in a direction that is not really in their best interest. But I think that we find that there are real use cases for those sorts of experiences and engaging with clients in a way that really can benefit them and put their interests first. So one example of something that we do on our platform is that when a client is about to either make a very substantial allocation change, so somebody's invested 90% in stocks and they want to go to 100% bonds, or if they are want to withdraw a substantial amount of assets from the platform, we have an experience that surfaces what the tax impact of that sort of drastic move would be. And it's not to stop a client from doing anything that they would otherwise be inclined to do, but it's a chance for them to pause and to appreciate that you know, taking a drastic action and, and realizing gains is not cost-free. And we found that actually encourages clients to stay invested for the long run, which we all know is, you know, really critical for long-term, good long-term outcomes and prevent them from taking rash decisions. So I think, you know, there, there certainly are good and bad practices within the umbrella of digital engagement practices or predictive data analytics. And we think that there should be room for the sorts of practices that, that can be really put to use in clients' best interests. 
Yeah, I would agree with that. I think there's room to use these tools in your space uh, in a way that is, you know, both compliant and helpful to clients and maybe offers things that they didn't have before. You know, retail customers in particular sometimes I think are sort of going it alone and these types of tools can be helpful, but I'm hopeful that the SEC We'll try to figure out exactly what, you know, firms like Betterment and a bunch of others are, are doing. You know, how are they using these tools before they sort of just commit to a to a path, right? That that's my own little soapbox speech. Like figure out what firms are doing before you try to create a rule around what you think they might be doing. Yeah, I think that that's totally right. And you know, I think the other push that I think sort of complementary to, to that is just that technology takes us in a lot of unexpected directions. You know, I was sort of trying to situate where Betterment sits in the technological evolution. And given that, you know, it doesn't seem like it's the sort of area that really calls for very strict prescriptive rules. And, you know, just given the unforeseen way in which technology develops and a lot of the ways in which technology has increased access and reduced costs for investors, it seems like a principle-based approach makes more sense given that nobody knows what the state of technology is going to look like. You know, two years ago, we wouldn't have even thought that generative AI, you know, chat GPT was not anywhere in anyone's lexicon at that point. Completely agree. Uh, All right, let's switch gears just a little bit. You know, Chris talked about the Venn diagram earlier. Obviously, we've sort of focused on one of those layers. But as we mentioned, there are a number of non-securities, I'll say, uh, rules and regulations that impact the business. You've mentioned a couple of them. Uh, One of which that we've heard about recently is the DOL fiduciary rulemaking proposal that updates the definition of an investment advice fiduciary. Uh, I, I assume that's on your radar, but why don't you tell us a little bit about how Betterment's thinking about it? Sure. It, it, it is on our radar, and we were also pleased to submit a, a comment letter uh, on that particular proposal. Mm-hmm. And uh, I had the pleasure of, of testifying uh, before the, the DOL on some hearings that they had held on the, the proposal back in, in December. So so happy nice. to talk about it. So maybe the best place to start is from you know our perspective that I think uncontroversial. Americans face a significant shortfall in retirement savings. And there's a lot of pressure that is put on the individual by the shift from defined benefit to defined contribution plans, where it really falls to the individual retirement saver to navigate a lot of market complexity. That creates a huge need for good quality financial advice but unfortunately, there's a lot of conflicted retirement advice that's out there even today, notwithstanding developments in the regulatory space like Regulation BI, which I, I think, Chris, you, you don't like to, to talk about. But um, No comment. <laughs> but I, I think that we do see that you know, there are still financial incentives for financial service providers to recommend products that put their own interests ahead of their clients or their customers. And that mostly means a lot of higher fee or lower quality products that generate more revenue for the provider and generate less returns for the investor. We've studied this area. We know that even conservatively speaking, that transfers billions of dollars a year from the pockets of investors to their financial service provider. And the fiduciary rule is intended to address that particular problem. So I think it's unsurprising that we are supportive, strongly supportive of the goal of increasing access to unconflicted advice, even though it's you know not really talking our book. It, you know, we're differentiated in the sense that we're a fiduciary and we put our clients' interests first and we're able to just search the marketplace to really discover what the lowest cost, best product is for the investor's particular circumstances. 
And so the, the thrust of our concerns with the rule are really just ensuring that it isn't being extended to situations where there isn't an actual recommendation of an investment that's taking place, because we think that requiring some of those peripheral interactions to be subject to a fiduciary standard would actually reduce the extent to which good advice is available to investors in the marketplace. We think it would chill providers from actually going out and offering good fiduciary advice to new clients or to clients in different ways. And so maybe just two quick examples of something like that would be educational interactions. So where investors are learning about a provider for the first time, you know, the way that even Betterment approaches investments isn't necessarily intuitive and obvious to those who've sort of dabbled in the financial services space before. The concept of a managed account and discretionary management, you know, isn't something that everybody understands immediately and requires a little bit of explanation. But if those sort of educational interactions were subject to a fiduciary standard that would require, you know, a lot more intaking of information by us before we could explain even what we do at a very high level to prospects. And, you know, we think that that would sort of reduce our ability to serve an even broader population. Uh, and one other example where, you know, this is sort of possible would be in what are called hire me conversations where an employer is searching for a 401k provider. And you know, we think that providers should be able to talk about their investment philosophies generally in those conversations without being held to a, a fiduciary standard. So we're, we're hopeful that the final version of the rule will clarify you know, those particular points. But I do think that we are differently situated from many in the industry who have come out sort of scorched earth against the proposal, but we very much are in favor of the, the underlying objectives behind it and hope that some version of it does you know, actually make its way into a final form. Josh, you talked a little bit about your testimony experience on the Hill. And one of the things that caught our eye recently was your representation of Betterment at a White House listening session on leveraging the workplace to improve financial resilience. Now, when I hear the phrase listening session, I imagine my old business law uh, professor in grad school just talking for 89 out of the 90 minutes straight, right? That classic lecture here. So tell us a little bit about this listening session and then kind of- You were listening, right? I, I, I mean, did you, listen, yeah. maybe 87 of the 89 minutes. And Professor Swans, I know you're a big fan of the podcast, so hopefully you, you enjoy the reference. But Josh, back to you. Tell us a bit about that listening session and where Betterment kind of fits into that picture of- leveraging workplace to improve financial resilience. Yeah, sure. So it was great to be able to, to participate alongside other financial service providers and some large employers and some think tanks and you know a number of officials from the National Economic Council and the Department of Labor and, and Treasury. And you know, I think they the economic policymakers in the room really were listening to the impressions of those who were sort of out on the front lines trying to make some headway on the issue of financial preparedness and financial resilience. So you know, we were there to talk a little bit about our student loan management offering, which I mentioned is, is part of our business to business, our betterment at work line of business. And you know, we were there to offer the perspective that we do some research on a regular basis. We put out what we call a retirement readiness report. And that report has shown that Investors who are saving for retirement have some substantial concerns and stresses that have to do with balancing the need to save for retirement with the need to pay off their student loans. So that report, the most recent one, showed that 64% of surveyed respondents say that their student loans are affecting their ability to save for retirement. And you know, we think that against that backdrop, 
the recently passed Secure 2.0 law provides a, a really great hook for employers to be able to simultaneously help their employees to pay down student debt while also saving for retirement. And so we recently launched a unique small business-focused student loan 401k matching program that's consistent with the provision of Secure 2.0. It was a huge priority for us, and we were really happy to be able to talk about it at the White House. And you know, we think that it's a great way both to help employers address that, that particular trade-off, particularly for younger workers where that trade-off is particularly pronounced. But you know, we think it's a real win where employers can sort of appeal to you know, potential employees who, you know, as a benefit that they can advertise. And uh, at the same time, you know, we can help to really contribute to, in a positive direction to retirement readiness. Yeah, and that's one of the topics I always like to go back to is kind of that automatic enrollment and the role that it plays in, in folks' lives. Uh, you know, there's a lot of great economic research, I believe Nobel Prize winning research on the impact of the auto enroll uh, versus requiring, uh, you know, maybe a 22 or 23 year old starting out to click a box. We can save our generational discussions and disparagements for a later date. But that really does kind of lead to or may lead to a significant change in what's available and how these individual savers are preparing themselves for later in life. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. And, you know, we're huge fans of Secure 2.0 for that reason. You know, we're fans of, of any legislative efforts to improve retirement security. But, you know, Secure 2.0 certainly takes that concept of, of defaults and really gets it right. So, you know, the concept of both auto enrollment and then also auto escalation that, you know, the default is to increase slightly as your income hopefully goes up over the years to increase the percentage uh, of deferrals to, to get to a point where you're really saving, you know, a significant amount for retirement every year in a way that, you know, isn't something that you feel or have, you know, explicitly have to internalize and, and make that decision, you know, really sort of put people on the right path to, to retirement security, which we think is great. All right. So we've been sort of ticking off a bunch of the uh, the regulators that you like to play with in the sandbox. I think we've had the, the SEC, FINRA, DOL, IRS, FDIC. I don't think I've missed any. And that's to say nothing about the other acronyms. But there is one that we have not touched on quite yet. That is the CFPB. And no, that is not the Certified Financial Planner Board of Standards, the CFP Board. Listeners, if you want to hear about that, go back to episode 83 with Tom Sporkin. He tells us all about it. Tom's a good friend of the podcast. No, the CFPB is the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. So just, again, I like to set baselines. Josh, tell us what products or services does Betterment offer that even come within the purview of the CFPB? Sure. So it, it's not really any products or services that we offer directly, but the products and services of, of others that have an indirect effect on the services that uh -huh. we offer. So sort of the, the way that I like to think about it is the, the proverbial receipts and statements in a shoebox that somebody would bring to their financial advisor in the old day. And you know today with the Digital with digital interfaces, it looks a little bit different, but the idea is that Betterment is able to provide advice on a client's entire financial picture if they are able to connect accounts to their Betterment account. So they have a 401k at an employer that isn't managed by Betterment, but they still want to take into account those assets as they're thinking about how much they should be saving in order to achieve their whatever goal they have for how much they want to have saved for retirement. And 
The CFPB comes into play there because Dodd-Frank Section 1033 established that a consumer has a right to the data that is in the possession or control of their financial service providers and left it Mm. to the CFPB to make a rule or to effectuate a rulemaking to effectuate that provision. And so the threshold question for the rulemaking is really, does having a right to one's data mean that the consumer can freely grant permission to other financial service providers to use Mm -hmm. that data? And, you know, we think, and the CFPB has signaled that uh, they think that the answer to that question is yes. And they're currently in the process of finalizing a rulemaking on 1033 that is going to set the rules for the road and establish common standards with respect to what we think of as the data aggregation ecosystem. So, you know, you may have heard of companies that sort of serve as the piping that connect bank accounts to investing accounts to sort of accounting and budgeting software and sort of holds that whole ecosystem together. And so, you know, we've been following along with that rulemaking very carefully because we think it's really important for our clients to be able to link their external accounts to their Betterment account if they choose to do that and if they want to receive more advice from Betterment. And, you know, the one thing that I think we'd really like to see in the rulemaking proposal when it's ultimately finalized, the the one omission that we saw as we were looking at the proposal was that it sort of starts out too small for our liking, that it only applies to certain transactional accounts and doesn't apply to a broader set of accounts that would include investment and brokerage accounts. And we'd love to see those sort of explicitly provided for in the rulemaking such that they're subject to the same set of standards and, and the same rules as other types of accounts. And you know, we really think that would sort of unlock the ability for Betterment to provide even better, higher quality advice to our client base. I've been sort of amazed throughout this conversation, Josh. It's like, you know, here's this rule that most people don't like, but we do like it. And like, here's this rule that requires, you know, to make some information available. And Betterment says, let's make more available. I mean, you guys, I think you're unique if, you know, if not maybe a little bit unusual as an organization in that sense, but it's refreshing. Yeah, I think, you know, that's one thing that, that, you know, is really a a fun part of my job. I think that I sort of have the coolest, most, most interesting legal job that, that you could find. And, you know, I sort of keeps me interested every day, which is that the sort of puzzle of solving problems, I think you could look at it that the regulatory space is just a series of impediments that you have to work around. But, Mm. you know, it really is sort of an opportunity to be creative. And, you know, we certainly endeavor to keep ourselves squarely within the, you know, the rules that we find them. But we think that, you know, there can sometimes be a little bit of a lack of imagination in terms of how firms are approaching these sorts of issues. And, you know, that with a a little bit of creativity and a little bit of of sometimes counterintuitive thinking that the regulations can really be your friends. I like that. Opportunities and not impediments. I'll I'll see if I can sell some of my clients on that concept. (laughs) I think we just need to have Josh on, Kurt, every time we're not feeling too, uh, you know, enlightened or or happy about the markets. Josh, you put such a positive spin on on things I know some of our other guests maybe have a different opinion on uh, when it comes to, uh, you know, using the word impediments much more broadly than maybe that, uh, that situation describes. And again, you know, for many, right, the confluence of all of these different regulations is is challenging and stressful and and anxiety inducing. And it sounds like the position that the betterment in yourself are taking is really to respond to those with what can be done, uh, instead of looking at the things that can no longer or, or may be difficult to be done. 
Uh, and on that note, are there any other speaking or maybe listening gigs that we should look out for you at in, in the coming days, Josh? N- nothing planned right now, but I you know, would be delighted to come back and, and play the foil anytime you, you know, are looking for <laughs> need, a crossfire-like right? debate on the, you know, the merits of financial regulation. Love it. That's Love excellent. It. Well, Josh, thanks so much for taking the time. We really appreciate it and look forward to that next episode where we get to speak with you again. Thanks so much for having me. Really appreciate it and uh, had a great time. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Insecurities Podcast. And a special thanks to our guest, Josh Rubin of Betterment. We always love to hear from our listeners. Look for us on social media to share your thoughts and comments or topics you'd like us to discuss on future episodes of Insecurities. Please use the hashtag InsecuritiesPod on X or LinkedIn to join the conversation. You can find me at Ekimoff CPA. And I'm at Enforce underscore Update. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review Insecurities wherever you listen. Be well, everyone, and we'll see you next time. Thanks for tuning in. Thanks for listening to Insecurities, a podcast from PLI, the Practicing Law Institute. PLI is a nonprofit provider of authoritative professional services training and continuing education. In an increasingly complex business environment where intricate corporate structures reign, insecurities can help you make sense of it all. A special thanks goes to the producer of insecurities, Daniel Pinitz, as well as hosts Chris Ekimoff and Kurt Wolf. For more information about PLI's SEC Institute or to view hundreds of hours of fresh and relevant on-demand programming covering changes within the security sector, visit pli.edu membership and sign up for a privileged membership. These recorded materials are designed for educational purposes only. This podcast does not constitute legal, audit, tax, consulting, business, financial, investment, or other professional advice, and it does not create an attorney-client relationship. Please consult a qualified professional advisor before taking any action based on the information herein. Furthermore, the views and opinions expressed in this podcast are solely those of the individual participants. These views are not the views of the hosts or their employers. Users of this podcast may save and use the podcast only for personal or other non-commercial educational purposes. No other use, including without limitation, reproduction, retransmission, or editing of this podcast may be made without the prior written permission from PLI.